0: Welcome back to Streamageddon, the podcast where we try and fail to watch everything on CNN+. It's too late. We can't watch it. It's gone. My name is Chris Barlow, and I am joined, as always, by Diane Nora. Hello, Diane.
1: Hi, Chris. It's great to see you.
0: It's good to see you. CNN+, Plus, we can no longer see, but each other, we can. And isn't that the friends we made along the way? Isn't that the, the whole journey?
1: Uh, yes. Luckily, our, our friendship outlasted CNN.
0: Well, you know, I I wasn't sure at first, but somehow we made it further. And we're going to talk about that just a little bit. But we have so much to get to this week. We took a week off and the news decided that was a good time to just pile on. And so we want to get to uh, a lot of shows that are coming up. And in the second half of this episode, we are going to talk about one of our favorite shows. I'm going to just speak for you, Diane, and say this is one of your favorite shows. It's a little show called Barry. That airs on HBO, also now known as HBO Max. And it has been so long since Barry has been on the air. We're going to do something extra special in the second half. We are going to start by revisiting the pilot from 2018. So if you have never seen Barry, or if you have just forgotten what Barry was... And if you have forgotten, how dare you? But that's besides the point. No judgment. If you are looking to understand Barry, get into Barry, we're going to start by reviewing the pilot. So light on spoilers just to get you a flavor for the show. We love this pilot, and I I think we're going to have a good little conversation about it. And then in the final half of the back half of the show, we're going to talk about the new season of Barry, which just premiered on HBO. So we have so much to get to. And I think we all know where this is going to start. This is CNN. Yes, the dream is over. As I had to interrupt our last episode to inform you, dear listener, CNN Plus did not even live through the three days it took us to edit the last episode. Real, real tragedy right there, Diane. How are you holding up?
1: I, I'm taking it one day at a time.
0: What else can uh, we do?
1: Right. I, I will say, I mean, there is, there are a lot of people who will be out of a job because of this. And hopefully they land on their feet soon, which is always, you know, the case when we talk about these programs being canceled, entire streaming services being canceled,
0: yeah, it's not a good day for those people. I, and and yes, in all honesty, I do feel bad for the people who work for CNN Plus because, as is now entirely clear, this was kind of a game of corporate chicken. Mm. CNN, under its old ownership at AT&T, was just rushing full speed ahead to the launch of CNN Plus while their incoming owners from uh, Discovery, which we now will always refer to as Wapro Disco... Uh, Wabro Disco did not want this. The Discovery team did not want CNN Plus to launch as a standalone service because the Discovery team wants everything to roll into one subscription or one mega bundle at some point. That is their vision. They made that pretty clear before they took over at the beginning of May, and, mm-hmm. or uh, technically the end of April, a- and yet CNN did not read the tea leaves. They did not see where the wind was blowing, or they did. And the executives in charge thought, screw it. If we launch it, they can't cancel it right away because that'll look bad. But what they don't know is that you don't mess with the Zazz. David Zazlov, he's coming in and he's saying, we are here to be responsible owners who cut costs right away. And the first cut cost they cut was the marketing budget for CNN Plus. And then a couple of days later, they went, you know what, the whole thing, just the whole thing.
1: Yeah you know, before Chris Licht even started, it was gone.
0: Yeah. So that was also in in the recording of the last episode, we thought, well, we still have some time to see what CNN is going to do with this, what uh, Discovery is going to do, because Chris Licht, formerly of The Late Show, was set to take over on May 2nd. He was the new incoming head of CNN, now officially the head of CNN. And so we thought at the very least, even though the the Warner... Uh, discovery deal was closing at the end of April. They wouldn't make a seismic shift with CNN Plus before Chris Licht officially took the reins. But instead, within days of the deal closing, Chris Licht held an all hands meeting, and I, I have a quote here from the New York Times story about this because this says everything, and and it does hurt a little bit. I, I do, you know, as much as we enjoy Schadenfreude on this podcast, listener, I do want you to imagine being in this all hands meeting for a second and imagining hearing. Your new boss, who has not even started yet. Uh, Say this, according to the New York Times. Mr. Licht, who officially starts his role on May 2nd, compared CNN Plus to a residential property that had been constructed without the input of its intended owner. The quote from Licht is Then the new owner came in and said, What a beautiful house, but I need an apartment.
1: This is not my beautiful home. (laughs)
0: This is not my beautiful house. (laughs) Uh, and and listen that is about as diplomatic as you can get in this scenario Mm. because I, i you know all credit to chris licht he's not the one who made this decision he may fully agree with this decision but this and i'm sure he was consulted in how they approached this and the decision they made but this was a decision from the heads of discovery they did not want a standalone cnn plus service let alone one that was you know producing dismal numbers at launch but honestly the numbers weren't the issue. The issue was they didn't want this as a standalone service. They never did.
1: I'm excited to see how he, I mean, recovers isn't the right word. How he launches his tenure there with this yeah. shadow what? casting over it.
0: A hard foot to start on, let's say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and listen, CNN Plus was a gamble on the future of CNN, but was in no way the bread and butter of CNN, which is something we talked about a lot on the last episode, so I I won't repeat ourselves. But yeah, he definitely, I'm sure, wished to have a different first all-hands meeting with the people at CNN, but this is the one he got, and uh, we'll see where he goes from there. This does lead us, though, to a listener question. And we love a good listener question. So Buterson wrote in and uh, he asked this after the downfall of CNN plus, do you think a new streaming service will ever succeed or was it just bad business? And I do think that's a really good question. He pointed out that other streamers really have not had a lot of luck with uh, news programming, with the exceptions being Last Week Tonight with John Oliver or Real Time with Bill Maher. And both of those, I would point out, are really just HBO weekly shows that have successfully migrated to streaming, but they are not streaming shows originally. And so I wouldn't quite consider them examples of a good streaming news program, let alone the fact that they're comedy.
1: Yeah, I'd say that their, their primary aim is comedy, though, with Bill Maher. <laughs>
0: hey, is it funny? You know. I, yeah, it's a debatable point.
1: But, another another question. Yeah, you
0: know. Uh, but But I think there's an interesting point there as well, because while those are comedy news shows— uh, Netflix in particular has tried the comedy news show Beat, and their best success was Hasan Minhaj, and even that didn't yeah. last very long. And so that whole genre of streaming topical news, whether it be a news service or topical comedy, that's never been easy for any of the streaming platforms, let, let alone peak Netflix when they were willing to throw money at anything.
1: I do think someone's going to crack this just because it's a popular format, Um and, you know, I, th- I think. Everything, eventually, you'll have a streaming option for. I I think Um, so.
0: I do imagine a CNN tile in the HBO Max Discovery mega app makes a lot of sense. What would you see in that tile? I I don't know. Because if it's just, I mean, as a viewer, what I would like is just CNN. But in order to get just CNN, you need to get cable still. And that's not changing in the near future. So the, Mm -hmm. the tension there is between the kind of legacy cable deals and what people actually want, which is, number one, the flaw with HB, uh, with CNN Plus, rather, to begin with, is they were creating a service that was not what the consumer wanted because they were constrained by their deals that keep CNN, the cable channel, afloat.
1: So to Peterson's question, this doesn't exist yet, but I think it will.
0: Yeah. It's a matter of time. But I think unlike a lot of things in the streaming world, I think that time span is longer than we would like to think. I think a lot of people think, yeah, streaming, it's all going to come. It's coming now. Sports, comedy, live shows, Mm -hmm. uh, the Oscars, you can stream them you sort of can stream them. Uh, and and whether that's a good idea anymore, I don't know. But more importantly, news is going to be, the, I think, the slowest one, even slower than live sports, which is what I think a lot of people associate with, like, a cable package, is paying for cable to get live sports. But I think news is actually going to be the biggest straggler, live news in particular.
1: I also think that when we do see it, it's probably going to be part of a bigger bundle, or, like yeah. you mentioned, a tile.
0: Yeah, and we've talked before about how Peacock is rebranding their news as the MSNBC hub on Peacock, which is just so catchy. And I do think it'll be that direction of large brands finding their news brand and integrating it with their bigger streaming platform.
1: That's a really great question, though.
0: Yeah. And please, listener, when you have really great questions or questions that aren't so great, we don't judge, send us your questions. It's podcast at streamageddon.com. Uh, But now we have more news to get to, in particular, new news. But don't worry, this is more news about Wabro Disco, because we love Wabro Disco, our new streaming overlord. And so we're going to run through a a series of fast uh, Wabro Disco headlines because again this deal just closed in the last couple of weeks. Officially, Discovery is now in charge of Warner. They have merged. Uh, AT and T is back to being a telephone company that you don't like instead of a telephone company you don't like that also owns John Oliver for some reason. Now they just do that other thing again, and uh, Discovery is officially in charge of the entire Warner Media empire, which just to recap includes all of the Turner brands like TNT and TBS. CNN, the DC Universe, Harry Potter, uh, HBO, obviously, and HBO Max. Am I missing a massive pillar of the... Wabro Disco. I mean, we haven't even gotten into the disco side with HGTV. And I'm sorry, we don't have enough time for me to list all of these, do we?
1: It would would be uh, quite an endeavor. Yeah. Instead, let's move on to the new
0: news uh, from Wabro Disco. And uh, we're going to start with the DC Universe. The DC Universe is, of course, the comic books that are not the Marvel Cinematic Universe. They're the other ones that you might have seen. And uh, those have been gaining some momentum on HBO Max. In particular, the Peacemaker show was a pretty good, uh, pretty big hit earlier this year. That's DC Universe, and they had more DC Universe sh- uh, shows and movies planned. But uh, Wabro Disco has their own ideas. They really want to recreate the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, with kind of one, let's say, vision leader at the the head, the way Kevin Feige is for Marvel. And so they're they're trimming some projects they don't think fits with their long term vision, starting with a project I did not know existed, a live-action Wonder Twins movie. Because everybody remembers and loves the purple spandex-wearing Wonder Twins. Do Do you love the Wonder Twins?
1: You know, I I didn't know about the Wonder Twins until I'd read that they were being canceled.
0: Well, that's the most attention the Wonder Twins I think have ever gotten in the last thirty years. Uh, the Wonder Twins had had the ability to transform into things. One of them could turn into animals, and the other one could turn into like water vapor or g- liquid. They one of them had a useful transformation power, and the other one very much so did not.
1: Alex Mack.
0: Yeah, Alex Mack-like powers, um, but only only in pairing with their animal power sibling that really makes the Alex Mack powers look a little lackluster. Although I I would watch an Alex Mack reboot, gritty, preferably. Uh, But this does lead us to even more Wapro Disco news. I have no time to mourn the loss of the Wonder Twins. I am barreling straight through to what's happening in the Turner brands. The Turner brands most notably are TNT and TBS. And uh, they are unclear what Wabro Disco wants to do with them. These headlines came out uh, within a few days of each other. First, they just froze development of new programming at TNT and TBS. They they just hit Mm. pause on all new scripted shows at TNT and TBS. Then... They went, actually, on top of that, we're going to cancel The Last OG, which is a TBS show starring Tracy uh, Morgan, who I will never stop almost calling Tracy Jordan. Tracy
1: Jordan.
0: Uh Uh-huh. Uh, And that show had finished its most recent season in October of last year and had not had any word on a renewal yet. So that was an easy one, I think, to pull the plug on. Uh, The other shows that are still pending and in theory still continuing at TNT and TBS, uh, TBS has Miracle Workers, which I actually really enjoy. I've mentioned before I finally binged Miracle Workers. That is very funny and has been renewed.
1: Great. They have some great comedy writers working on that.
0: They really do. And they have a great cast. Uh, mm. And Chad, which I have not seen but heard good things about, that has been renewed. Uh, or already has a second season, I think, maybe uh, filmed and is uh, slated to air later this year. And then American Dad, which I constantly forget is still a television show. But that moved from Fox to TBS and uh, in 2014 which Mm -hmm. says how long American Dad has been on TV. And that has been renewed uh, for two more seasons, so they're still going to make American Dad. And uh, uh, animation, relatively speaking, is cheap, so it doesn't surprise me that they would continue with that. But it does make you wonder, will they potentially roll it over to a different uh, streaming venue? Uh, One thing worth noting there, a great show, Search Party, I love. Search Party. Search Party was originally a TBS show. It, through a bizarre series of uh, corporate handovers, wound up airing its final season on HBO Max before this deal closed. So they had actually left the Turner universe and wound up airing their uh, final season and streaming their back catalog on HBO Max. But it did open my mind to the idea that, hey, maybe you just take these comedies from TBS and you roll them over to HBO Max.
1: Yeah, I think that I also could see Miracle Workers taking off much more on like an HBO Max.
0: I think so. I think, honestly, it's been a long time since anyone below the age of like 50 has thought about TBS or TNT. They are primarily networks to run syndicated reruns of Law & Order Mm -hmm. and The Big Bang Theory. And so I, I think, honestly, these remaining shows, they will do better on HBO Max. If that's the idea, which uh, betting on what Wabro Disco's already told us, it's probably where they're going. Great. Uh, TNT has two whole scripted shows left. TNT is more the drama network. Uh, they have Animal Kingdom, which is about like surfing, I think. I remember it being on in a bar once. That's what I know about Animal Kingdom. It's not the Disney theme park. And uh, uh, Snowpiercer, which is the TV adaptation of the really, really interesting movie, and that Mm. is uh, still going on. That has been renewed for a fourth season already. And again, I I look at Snowpiercer and I'm like, that looks like it would fit really well on HBO Max.
1: It does. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. So uh, keep an eye on where those end up. I think so. Yeah.
0: And, And what does this mean for TBS and TNT as linear channels? Are... Uh, does Discovery have a plan to revamp what they air on cable? Because keep in mind, they're not about to give up the advertiser revenue of these two channels that do generate money on cable. So there is some plan for them. And Discovery is a network of, of many networks, is a company that is familiar with running networks of mediocre cable programming and a lot of filler cable programming. That is sort of their bread and butter uh, before entering the streaming universe. So, I don't doubt that they have some idea about what they want to do at TBS and TNT. But the shows, where are they headed? And if they kind of turn TBS and TNT into pure rerun machines, does that mean that they are moving all their eggs into the HBO Max basket early? Or... Mm is this more a gradual process and will these things keep airing on tbs and tnt for a while but they're going to roll uh, rather uh, ramp down on new show development and they're going to stop airing any new programming on tbs and tnt so many possibilities i am just rambling at this point and we have so much more news to get to diane do you have a moment to catch your breath before we talk about even more news Yes. Okay, that was the only moment you have because spring TV season is here. It's a beautiful weather out, great time to stay inside and binge a lot of TV. And I at first went, it's spring TV season is a season. I I thought it was like everything came back in February uh, from their winter hiatus and, and then we went on our summer hiatus. But then I am 100 years old and I am discussing how it worked when it was the Philip Morris Variety Hour starring Dick Cavett. Uh, <laughs> instead, it turns out there is an Emmy deadline coming up. And we have a link from Variety. Michael Schneider kind of recapped this really well, I thought. The eligibility for the fall Emmys is uh, the end of May, May 31st. And so a ton of series are either premiering their new season or premiering their new series just in time to air a bunch of episodes before the eligibility deadline cuts off. And so I have a a list that is not the complete list. Please, I hope I can get through it. We are about to see the return or premiere of Atlanta, Barry, Better Call Saul, The Flight Attendant, Girls 5 of the Hacks, Russian Doll, Stranger Things, Bosch, Legacy, Candy, The First Lady, Gaslit, Anatomy of a Scandal, A Very British Scandal, I Love That for You, Killing It, The Man Who Fell to Earth, Obi-Wan Kenobi, The Offer, Outer Range, The Staircase, Star Trek, Strange New Worlds, Tokyo Vice, Under the Banner of Heaven, and we own this city. And again, that is not a complete list.
1: I watch like all of these shows. What am I going to do? It's
0: actually, that list terrified me because it was like so many shows that I watch. How will I ever?
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, Is it too much all at once?
1: I I think that they will find that, right? That some of these shows might not get the attention that they would normally get because of the The timing. There's so much competition.
0: Yeah, yeah. And another thing Michael uh, Schneider pointed out in this article is... Now that seasons are shorter, they can stack them closer to the eligibility cutoff. Whereas before, Mm -hmm. you would need to air more episodes, um, a greater percentage of your season before then. So you'd have to premiere it earlier. And now you've got, you know, a a show like Barry that's going to give us, I haven't looked because it'll make me sad, eight episodes maybe. And they they can just bring it out right before the deadline because the majority of them will get out in time.
1: Yeah. And I think that could mean, too, that we'll see a few of these shows come out in weird clusters, like a two episode drop, a three episode drop, you know, um, as these uh, services try to find out what gets people to tune in again.
0: Yeah. And then and then we'll probably hit a stretch where some of these won't do as well out the gate and then might get some momentum uh, over the summer when things will slow down a little bit and people are kind of dredging through their back catalog.
1: Yeah, I mean, I know I have a lot of catching up to do. So just with that list alone, I'd say I might not ever have to see the sunshine till at least July.
0: Great. When it's the most pleasant to be out in the sunshine here. Yes, that sounds like a good plan. Uh, But, you know, we have even more news to talk about. And it's going to tie into this question of is there too much to watch, too much good TV to watch? Because one place where that is becoming a really interesting question is a little place... Called Netflix. That's right. We're back with the Netflocalypse update. Uh, we're in maybe week three of the Netflocalypse. Uh, how are you feeling, Diane?
1: I'm trying my best to stay afloat, you know.
0: Yeah, all of us are. It's a challenging time.
1: Mm-hmm. They
0: canceled Space Force. Space Force, a show you didn't even remember existed.
1: Indeed. I had, I had completely forgotten it. And now I'm like, oh, should I watch...
0: No, oh, you shouldn't, no. because they canceled it.
1: I won't. Yeah.
0: And this may be one of their problems any you find out,
1: oh, that show that
0: I never got around to watching, should I watch it? Nope, they canceled it. Oh, the Babysitter's Club reboot, that might be, nope, they canceled it. But... I digress because we actually have a really good link in the show notes this week, an article from Kim Masters at The Hollywood Reporter uh, right after the bad earnings report that we talked about last week, the beginning of the Netflix, uh, Kim Masters went and I think just called up every single source that she has and got everyone to say all of the angsty angry dishy things that they were holding inside and it makes for a really juicy read and it is definitely an airing of grievances so you do have to take it with a grain of salt but i thought there was a lot of interesting stuff in this article
1: i completely agree and one of the things that i loved about it was that it took a story that we were taking in as numbers and really gave it some characters behind it yes um, she focuses a lot on this, um, ousted executive at Netflix, Cindy Holland, uh, who had greenlit a bunch of shows that really sort of put Netflix on the map as a streamer and then left in 2019, was it? That sounds Was forced right. out. Forced out in 2019.
0: And, and to be clear, Netflix has a corporate culture that, that is, uh, kind of embraces uh, aggressive candor, uh, saying to, to people, you're not a good fit here anymore, and we're telling you that and we have a good severance package so maybe it's time you took advantage of that and left that that is part of their core management philosophy so to say she was forced out is not actually unusual for Netflix but i thought mm-hmm. it, it it did you know again it put a major rivalry uh in this story uh Cindy Holland versus uh Bella Baharia Baharia that sounds more so. right uh who took over essentially for Cindy's kind of head honcho of the original programming, unofficial role.
1: And um, to her credit, looks like Bella Baharia has been behind a few huge hits, um, including Squid Game, which I think is still... Yes, that she
0: was the green light on that. Yeah. Uh, But at the same time, she was also the green light on uh, Insatiable, which I had to be reminded existed. And that was a really cringy, fat, shamey dark comedy that no one connected with whatsoever, And yet, uh, Bella Baharia pushed that over Cindy Holland's objection. And I thought that was one of the real juicy moments in this article where you know, again, keeping in mind that a lot of this was, you know, off the record commentary that could have an agenda behind it. But Kim Masters paints this picture that Cindy Holland in the earlier days of Netflix originals had real authority to say, this is a show we're going to pursue, cost be damned, or this is a show we have no interest in, whether it's cost effective or not doesn't matter. I think it taste wise is not good. And Bella Baharia does not Again, keeping in mind that this could have a lot of agendas influencing the reporting, Mm -hmm. but Bella Baharia does not come off as somebody who cares much about taste. She's much more interested in numbers and quantity. And and that's how you get something like Squid Game in some ways, where you might have no idea if that's going to connect with viewers. And it did. And so there is something to be said for that strategy, but... There's also a reputation that I would certainly say Netflix has garnered over the last few years of quantity over quality. And that's starting to really affect uh, the the Netflix, uh, let's say, brand, but also their bottom line because they're spending a ton of money and they're not necessarily generating the hits that people expect or that they want. Yeah,
1: and I think that when we think about something like HBO Max, Even though it does have more content than HBO originally, there's still an expectation of a certain level of quality and that you just don't have that for a Netflix original.
0: Yeah, HBO Max, obviously they launched on their strongest brand, which was smart in hindsight. HBO is the quality brand there. But one other major factor is most of the Max originals have been pretty good. And at the very least, they've had some real standout hits like Hacks, Our Flag Means Death, uh, Peacemaker. They, they've had some shows that are max originals that have shown that even the streaming-only content can be HBO quality. Whereas Netflix, again, they've had some quality shows. They, uh, in the article, Kim Masters talks about The Queen's Gambit, which was Cindy Holland's uh, one of her last major projects. And The Queen's Gambit, a, a huge hit. And uh prestige to, to put it, it you know fairly.
1: Looks like it could have been a AMC series.
0: Absolutely. And it cost a fortune, and she got made fun of, according to these sources, for what was referred to internally as Holland's Folly until the show was a hit, and then again, according to sources, Bella Baharia took credit for it. And again, mm. this is according to sources who may have an agenda. But it does it, it does put a face, a couple of faces, on the tension, and it does jive with a narrative that we've at least been talking about, and I think a lot of people have been talking about, where what is going on at Netflix? They launched their originals uh, with so much prestige— Admittedly, in hindsight, the prestige around um, uh, Kevin Spacey is not really the prestige anyone wants to be associated with. But they launched their originals with a lot of prestige and a lot of highbrow intentions. And where they've wound up, you know, over a decade later, is we just have tons and tons and tons of content, but none of it is super memorable.
1: Yeah, and I think that that does bring up the question... Two, beyond just uh, Cindy Holland and Bella Baharia is, will we have any big leadership changes at Netflix coming up? Are Ted Sarandos and Reed Hastings going to stay? I mean, I I can see a world in which either one or both of them, um, you know, finds a new path soon. (laughs) Um, yeah in
0: in some way or if they elevate someone else to take on some of their responsibility as a way of saying maybe we are not the the gurus of the company that we we thought we were that that's a big question because like i said earlier uh, netflix has this very candid approach towards performance review but who gives the performance review to the co-ceos and right right now that's not clear and and you are not the only person i've heard ask this question recently but I, that is a really big question. Uh, speaking of leadership changes, though, another story that came up in the last few weeks with Netflix is they've really gutted their animation division. Their head mm-hmm. of animation left, and they canceled some uh, animation projects that were in development. And again, that was even before their earnings report came out, which could in some ways of them being um, you know a little uh, tightening of the belt ahead of time, let's say— but it, it does seem like there are some changes afoot. I don't necessarily know if they're the changes we are hoping for as viewers uh, because the, the people that have left are some of the most opinionated people. I'll bring it back to Kim Masters for one second. One thing I found really interesting in that article was that at least some of the people she spoke to said that uh, Cindy Holland had a reputation for working with showrunners and uh, producers on you know, not radically editing their ideas, but on improving them and actually providing feedback. And one thing I've always or recently, let's say found maybe true about Netflix. My impression about a lot of the originals at Netflix is they give you the money and they give you the number of episodes they're ordering, and then they never call you back and they just expect some some show to show up on a hard drive. And they're not really interested in having a conversation about, hey, why – what is the tone of the girl in the house across the street from the woman in the window? Is it a parody? Is it supposed to be accessible to people who don't know this material? Uh, And I don't think they're having those conversations very much. And if they are having those conversations very much, it sure isn't showing.
1: Well, and I imagine for some creators, that's a dream come true. Say, I don't want some network head bothering me with a thousand notes, but for some of these newer showrunners and um, for, you know, some uh, shows that are coming that's not from existing IP. anything if it takes you almost a full season to find your footing you might not come back at somewhere like netflix you just might never find your audience
0: yeah and they you know as we began this conversation talking about the cancellation of space force they are not going to give you many chances if you do not find your audience and grow your audience in by the time you hit season two you're not getting a season three and in many cases you're not getting a season two if you can't find your audience in the drop of season one where they where they likely dropped all your episodes at once so you literally had one shot and if the marketing didn't line up if the audience didn't find it right away Too bad.
1: It is curious that they are doing this belt tightening around animation, which is traditionally one of the less expensive ways to make television, as you were saying earlier. So I wonder if we'll continue to hear more to this story about what happened there behind the scenes.
0: I hope we do. And if you've got the time to read into this more, the link to Kim Master's story is in the show notes. I devoured this article. It is buzzy. It is gossipy. It is everything you want, as long as you take it with a grain of salt, out of a Hollywood story. Uh, But speaking of belt tightening, here's one place that Netflix is not tightening their belt whatsoever. Season four of Stranger Things, or season five, whichever season we're on, it's not the last one. It's almost the last one. It comes in two parts. I can't really remember the last season very well because they all kind of blur together at a certain point. More importantly, each episode in the new season of Stranger Things, let's call it season 12, uh, cost three. $30 million to produce.
1: What are they thinking?
0: (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. I hope it's season 52, because at this point, you better be pulling out all the stops to spend that much money. This is double what HBO paid per episode for the final season of Game of Thrones. Just take that into consideration. Game of Thrones, the final season of Game of Thrones, all the buzz was about how expensive it was to shoot and how epic every episode was. Stranger Things, is mostly set in malls in Hawkins, Indiana. And yes, there's the Upside Down. But mostly it is set in just normal places and then you do some cool CGI or like a creepy monster. What is costing $30 million per episode?
1: I'm so perplexed because part of that whole aesthetic too was sort of this like 80s kind of grungy DIY vibe. So what are they spending all this money on? I mean, I do know that good CGI is expensive, but there's not even that much CGI on the show in the earlier seasons. So like, I'm befuddled. I have no idea where this money is going.
0: So confusing to me. And at this moment, obviously, they already spent this money. They already filmed this season. But at this moment where they are suddenly, you know, tightening the belt in every other aspect of the business, the thing that is about to come back that honestly, I, I would say is past its peak I think stranger things peaked probably uh, in season two or the beginning of season three in terms of both quality and interest i don't think a lot of people are super excited for it to return i could be proven wrong and it's got some great people involved so happy days if i'm proven wrong but I, i get this vibe that they are spending the money too late and it's not gonna be a good return on investment but again that's my opinion on where the show's gone
1: that I, I guess that too. I mean, part of me is wondering did they just put like a Beatles song in like every episode? <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's like suddenly only Michael Jackson hits. Um, yeah, yeah. That know. would at
0: least be a valid explanation of where the money's going. I want receipts. Netflix, if you're listening, I hope you're not because you'll probably never take my calls if you are. But if you're listening, I want receipts. But, you know, we just talked about animation at Netflix, and I want to end our uh, revisit of the Netflocalypse, which I promise you, listener, we will revisit so often, you will be absolutely sick of hearing. But I spent time making it, so we will hear it each time. I want to just talk about animation for a second, because right after gutting their animation department, literally like three weeks ago, gutting their animation department, canceling a bunch of projects, this week, Netflix dropped a little sizzle reel trailer for their upcoming animation projects, which just reads like a company where one side and the other side aren't really talking to each other very much. And, you know, that is as good a time as any for me to transition to our sister podcast, The the number one fan podcast for Sonic the Hedgehog. Yes, that's right. I have a reason to talk about Sonic the Hedgehog again this week, and it's not a movie. I'm actually on theme. We have a television reason to talk about Sonic the Hedgehog, and yes, it's because of that Netflix animation sizzle reel, which ended with the reveal of uh, Sonic Prime. That's the name of this show. Sonic Prime, a 3D animated Sonic the Hedgehog cartoon coming to Netflix this year that seemingly has nothing to do with the Sonic the Hedgehog cinematic universe currently being pioneered in the Sonic the Hedgehog movies, and definitely has nothing to do with the Paramount Plus original starring Knuckles the Echidna coming to Paramount Plus. So there is just this other Sonic the Hedgehog IP agreement with Netflix to make a different animated Sonic the Hedgehog series on Netflix that is now going to air and compete with the mainline Sonic the Hedgehog series, which is going to be flagshipped by the Knuckles the Echidna show on Paramount Plus though this may explain why Paramount Plus went with knuckles instead of Sonic to helm their show
1: I know a six-year-old who will be very happy and I send my condolences to his parents. <laughs>
0: It's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. I just love the idea that we have now hit an era where in the year 2022, Sonic and Knuckles are rivals again. But this time, instead of being rivals over the Chaos Emeralds, they are rivals over the Streaming Wars.
1: Ooh, it's so dramatic.
0: Really? You know, the other thing I want to note about this uh, animation sizzle reel from Netflix is it had a cute brand. They called it Netflix After School. And I don't know if they've ever used this before because I watch zero animation on Netflix that is not about a depressed horse. So I really (laughs) don't know if this is an existing brand. But I thought, that's cute. It reminds me of ABC's One Saturday Morning from the 90s. Cute brand, cute way to organize the content, give you an idea of the age range they're aiming at there. And I yeah. assume, like all cute branding ideas from Netflix, it will be completely forgotten in a month and canceled.
1: <laughs> we'll see. We'll keep an eye on that, too.
0: And it would be worth noting on our way out of the Netflocalypse that amongst branding ideas they've canceled recently is their uh, industry blog, dumb to mm-hmm. I will not play the sound again. you can just you know picture the sound to dumb that's that's a thing that they're trying to make a thing okay cool cool, cool. uh they launched this blog late last year with uh, a bunch of like journalists writing industry blog posts that were advertorial that were all spawn con all sponsored content because it was a blog about Netflix run by Netflix, written by people paid by Netflix. And these people were were legit writers being paid mm-hmm. six-figure salaries to write behind-the-scenes uh, advertorial content about Netflix shows. You, you can imagine, based on my hesitant tone, I never read any of these because no one did. Because no form of promotion occurred to ever direct me to check out any content on Tadum.
1: Well, it's another project that I heard about because it was being canceled? Yes. And so they have not
0: actually canceled to dumb the blog. Instead, right. they have fired like all of the writers. And are going to keep some kind of ghost blog alive, some kind of, I'm sure, contractor-fueled garbage dump of listicle content that they will eventually get tired of and also get rid of. Uh, but again, like we talked about with CNN Plus earlier, this is terrible news for the people who worked there. A lot of them had only been there like six months or less. They were lured in with huge salaries. And then you're not even getting that huge salary. You haven't made it a whole year at the company.
1: Right, and many of them left other jobs to take these roles. Yes. um. Because you think Netflix
0: has deep pockets. They don't just turn around and cancel things right away. Although if you've ever watched a show on Netflix, you should know better. But I do not blame these people. I would have taken that job in a heartbeat, and I would be crushed to have it taken away so suddenly and and with so little support from the company for the idea. Because like we both said, had no interest in this until they got rid of it. Because they didn't try to make me interested
1: and you know for a lot of those people too journalism jobs aren't that easy to come by this is just a horrible story and just everything about it leaves a horrible taste in the mouth
0: (sighs) you know what's not gonna leave a horrible taste in the mouth Barry. That's as good as a transition as we'll ever get to talking about truly one of my favorite TV shows of the last decade, HBO's Barry, which premiered in 2018, and you can now stream on HBO Max. We're going to talk about that transition in a moment, but a quick spoiler alert, as I said at the top of the show, we're going to break this into two segments. So this is segment one, where we are going to talk about season one, episode one, the pilot of Barry, which aired in 2018, and which I accidentally rewatched because here's a fun <laughs> story HBO Max did not exist when the season uh, most recent of Barry, season two of Barry, ended in 2019. So I watched Barry on HBO Go. HBO Go does not exist anymore. Uh, HBO Max is, in fact, based on HBO Now, which you might remember was the thing that was not HBO Go. And so I did not watch it on HBO Now. I watched it on HBO Go. My watching history from HBO Go did not carry over to HBO Max. I did not know this. I did not think about this. I just saw the giant berry tile in the HBO Max app, and I hit play. And it took me several minutes to realize that I was watching the pilot of Barry and not a really jarring season three premiere.
1: It's been a while.
0: Yeah. And I honestly thought, oh, they're kind of doing like a like some time past and maybe he's gone back to his old life a little bit. It feels like a throwback. But no, it was literally I was being thrown back to 2018. I was watching episode one.
1: I watched the beginning of this show live every week on television. What? <laughs>
0: what? My dad still watches it live on television. We were oh, we should... were on a call uh, the night of the season premiere. And he was like, we have to get off the call now. It's Barry time.
1: Oh, great. <laughs> and I was like, honestly, I love that.
0: great. I want to watch it, too.
1: Though I should say for your dad and for me, it's not TV, it's HBO. That's correct. Excuse That's me. That's correct. Excuse me.
0: <laughs> uh, let's, let's talk about the pilot, because I was thrilled to have an excuse to revisit the pilot. The pilot of this show is better than I even remember.
1: It is. It's so good. It's really so, so funny. the The setup, really, is that it's about... A hitman taking an acting class. Uh, You just summarized
0: uh, it so much faster than I ever would have. It is about a hitman (laughs) taking an acting class. That is the premise of Barry, correct?
1: It's sort of a classic fish-out-of-water sitcom scenario in a lot of ways. Though, tonally, which is a a big part of what we're going to discuss with Barry, is that the tone is so fantastic is that uh it's very dark you know as you would imagine in a show about a man who kills people
0: yeah the the pilot literally opens with the visual of a man shot through the head dead in like a hotel bed that is the first image you see and then it reveals bill Hader as barry who shot him and then we see barry in his sad apartment playing video games looking incredibly depressed and with some imagery that suggests things we we learn about him as the episode goes on he's a war veteran he's clearly detached from any kind of close friends or family and that is uh, when fuchs shows up fuchs the uh horrible man played by the wonderful man named steven root
1: I can't get enough of Stephen Root. I'm so grateful to have this role as like an excuse to rediscover him because he's been in so many things that we love. Like, I think most no- most people know him as Milton from yes. Office Space, probably. But like, he's been in so many great shows. I remember um,
0: my first Stephen Root experience, News Radio. News
1: Radio. Yes. Oh, it's so good. This is
0: why we're, we're co-hosts. Yes.
1: <laughs> what a wonderful show. Um. And and he plays sort of a, Barry's handler. Yeah, he handles all the money parts of of the hitman work. Um, gives him his assignments. Gives him his assignments and also sort of keeps Barry in line. Yeah. Um. He though, he
0: also budgets the. He, he's kind of Barry's like accountant in some ways. He's nagging Barry in the pilot about spending too many night, nights at the hotel.
1: Yeah, he's kind of like, like a, a manager in some ways, and I think that the show because there are so many parallels with Hollywood. Because Barry finds his way to an acting class, as we've said, you know, the show has a lot of parallels of sort of things in the acting industry and things in the killing industry, <laughs> and the ways that they are really not so very different.
0: That's yeah, true. It's true. And so, in the pilot, Barry gets sent to Hollywood to kill a, a young actor named Ryan Madison because Ryan slept with a uh, gangsters wife essentially mm-hmm. somebody so from the Chechen mob
1: played by the the head of the Chechen mob is played by the great Glenn Fleshler who it was also one of the leads on the thing about Pam <laughs> Oh
0: oh I hadn't even hadn't even connected that
1: Yeah he's so good uh. lots of really really good comic performances basically every time we bring someone up i'm gonna have to stop myself from being like oh my god and it's this person and i love them (laughs) that's
0: also part of the the amazing thing about the show bill hader created the show along with alec berg who uh, many people know from uh, silicon valley and and Mm -hmm. other series and they know so many incredibly funny incredibly talented people and oh, that yeah. is a huge asset that the show has. And they're not all big names you would recognize. In fact, most of them aren't. But that is part of what makes it so good is they know these people who knock it out of the park every time and are, are not people known for it, You, or at least not household names.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, while people probably know Alec Burke mostly from Silicon Valley, didn't he write on Seinfeld? I mean, I think he's been in the comedy writing game yeah, for he, like, he's you know, he's storied. W- the stuff of legend, yeah. And it shows. It's a really good show.
0: It really does. So then the pilot, we we quickly... I wrote in my notes, uh, there's so much tonal whiplash in the opening of the pilot, but in a way that is handled very deliberately so you don't feel confused they the whiplash comes fast and it gets funny fast but you already have seen some very gruesome imagery so you know it's a dark show but then they immediately tell you don't worry it's also a very funny show and then he goes to la and everyone in la is a total crackpot is absolutely a character like who just walked off of 30 rock and they don't always hit that level of zaniness but they go there no. really quickly to tell you, yes, this is how absurd we can get. But it's because this is what L.A. is and the industry is really like sometimes. It's rooted in reality. He meets Sally, who becomes a major character in the show. Sally is uh, one of the members of the acting class. He meets her because she's reading lines to herself screaming uh, in a way that makes him, him think she's being accosted and so he interrupts her and she gets really angry at him for interrupting her reading her lines before going in to do her scene
1: and I love that too. It just automatically disrupts any sort of um, white knight narrative that we yeah. might have for Barry. Um, obviously, they already, um, you know, subverted that with. Not only are we going to have gruesome imagery in the beginning, that dead body we find out immediately was killed by our protagonist. Yes, so this is a show that's really, you know, not shying away from its content. but. It, I think similarly, it's reflections on sort of the depravity of Hollywood are equally unflinching, which yeah. is so satisfying. That's my favorite part of the show. I yes. have to be honest. It has just so many good jokes about TV and theater or well. as they mention in the pilot. Yeah, go
0: for it. <laughs> well, it's L.A. theater. So I guess they all do scenes for movies. This is something Barry says to Fuchs when Fuchs shows up because ba- Barry stumbles into this acting class by mistake and is enthralled by what he sees and gets put on stage because somebody claims that he's auditing the class in order to, to bully him into being their scene partner uh, in a very selfish actor move that felt very true. And and he gets, he thinks he's getting the applause at the end. He's not really getting the applause because he didn't really know what he was doing up there. But a, a light kind of goes off in his head you can see it in his face and he's he's suddenly really excited by the idea of people might actually see him for him instead of using him as a killing machine or having to hide himself because he is secretly a killing machine and if anyone found out that would be bad for him so you can see how this very quickly they give us all the breadcrumbs we need to understand this big leap he takes to wanting to be an actor in L.A. And wanting to take Gene Cousineau's acting class. And, of course, Gene Cousineau is our other major star, Henry Winkler, who is doing the finest work of his life in this show. And that is he saying really is. something because he is a talented mm-hmm. man.
1: Incredibly, and so good here in both his uh, comedic and dramatic moments.
0: Yeah, because his character is really flawed, really an asshole, and really funny, and really troubled. There's a he. It is mm-hmm. a dynamic, a real three dimensional role that gets more and more interesting as the series goes on. Uh, but in the pilot, we mostly get to see that he is a total swindler, and uh, I love him for it
1: yeah he's also you know a little bit abusive in that first scene with sally we see um uh that she's going up to do a scene um and she's been disrupted by this argument she's just had with barry and uh gene kusineau really goes into her and it's just um like starts shouting at her and sort of um humiliating her in front of her colleagues to the point that she has an emotional breakdown and then he's like use that use that in the scene and she ends up Uh, you know, doing a better performance of the scene. Now, that is something for anyone who has been to acting school, not uncommon, though I think Uh most people would say now that it's, you know, frowned upon. I just loved that they included that because it's, it's really just a manipulative, nasty way to treat another person. And he's so awful to her. And... I think the fact that she that's what motivates her as an actor and a character sets us up so much for the Sally that we'll talk about when we get to the new season. I Um, also
0: thought that was a great choice to make really clear in the pilot because uh, Fuchs is the same way in in so many ways. Fuchs is extremely manipulative and is the acting teacher of Barry's hitman life. And you see them back to back so much in the pilot as a way of really making it clear that, like, Barry is wrestling between these kind of two really messed up father figures. They are both bad influences, but he, one of them helps him see something new in himself that excites him, and the other one wants to hold him back where he is. And there, right. there is a moment I have to talk about in the pilot really quickly because we're going to talk more about some of the visual humor in this show— In one of the scenes where Fuchs comes to ask Barry, why have you taken an acting class instead of killing Ryan Madison like you were supposed to? Ryan Madison is in the acting class, so uh, Barry is arguing, well, I was there to scope out Ryan Madison, but then he wound up at the bar afterwards— being chummy residuals. with Ryan residuals, the bar residuals, being really chummy with Ryan Madison, driving Ryan Madison home because Ryan's had too many DUIs, not killing Ryan Madison, and Fuchs is asking Barry, you know, what is this? And Barry tells him, I want to be an actor. And there is this ex- this moment where the framing of the camera is what makes the joke work fuchs is gonna tell barry you know this is a terrible idea and so he goes to sit down and he grabs a chair and and is gonna have the chair with the back in front of him so he can kind of sit side you know straddle the chair like when you're getting real with somebody like hey kid let me tell you these dreams of hollywood they aren't gonna work out for you because you're a hit man and he puts the chair down like he's going to do that. And then he pauses and he picks the chair up. And we we see for the first time that it has giant wooden armrests so he cannot sit backwards on it. <laughs> and then he turns it around and sits normally. And this is done so perfectly. I had forgotten how visually funny the show was from the jump. Because later, Barry, Barry, Bill Hader... Uh, directs many episodes with many genius visual moments and some really daring directing stuff or at least really out unconventional for comedy directing choices uh later on but this is in the pilot from the get-go they are using their their camera setup to tell jokes if you're not watching closely if you're just listening in the background you're not getting half of what makes this show so tonally funny
1: yeah, absolutely. It's definitely a show that you don't want to sit and like half watch while you look at Twitter, no, which is something that's a I'm crime. guilty of for many other shows, but not for my Barry.
0: <laughs> Never for my Barry. In that same scene, I have to point out, Fuchs tells uh, Barry, "You want to take up a hobby? Take up painting. Hitler painted. John Wayne Gacy painted." He also says, "You want to go out there and try to burn a guy?" And he says, "There's the guy from the chicken commercial." To which Barry replies a line that I always remember from the pilot. I don't know if I'd do commercials. <laughs> this is the tone of Barry, and it is so good that in a in a conversation about how the Chechen mobsters will murder us if we don't come through, we are laughing hysterically at Barry, earnestly saying, yeah, I don't know if I'd do commercials.
1: And that sort of conflict that they set up, too, um, not only with the Chechen mob will kill you, Barry, but also that, like, if you want to be an actor like that ship has sailed because you are already a hitman allows the show to explore some more interesting thematic things for me. I think about like our people on a bigger scale beyond people who kill people, but is anyone capable of change? Yeah. Is there, is redemption possible? Um, and, and they really are willing to explore that in a comedy, which makes it to me beyond your typical sitcom. I think that, um, you know, traditionally a stop comedic character does not change if we think of someone like homer simpson he was you know basically the same as the day that he premiered you know that's part of the humor or like a larry david character
0: yeah seinfeld i was gonna say the whole joke of seinfeld is the end of the show nothing has changed and they are having the same conversations they always had
1: Right. And this show is is pushing that question without, you know, going into where it's going. We'll, we'll do that we'll later. There. But yeah, we'll get
0: there. Well, one other thing I want to talk about uh, with the pilot is, is two things that happen near the end. Number one Uh, Barry wants to take Gene's class. He misses the class because he's getting reamed out by Fuchs. He's thinking about his choices. But then he he finds Gene again, and he he says he really wants to take it. And this is a conversation that happens through the window of Gene's car because Gene is not getting out of the car for Barry. And he— I had forgotten, truly, that in the pilot, Barry literally tells Gene, I used to be in the special forces, like, all I know how to do is kill people, and so now what I do is I kill people. And they're mostly bad people, but what I do is kill people, and being on stage gave me some light that, that I could do something else. And he he literally says the entire conceit of the show to Gene, to which Gene goes, what's that from? <laughs> and And never— seems to hesitate that any of that could be true. He's like, wow, you improvised that. That's amazing. You should come back to the class. But, you know, don't be late. Cash up front. And I I love that the show, one, waited until the end of the episode to really dump that exposition. Because at this point, it was just connecting all the dots we'd already seen. And two, it was brave enough to say, yeah, he's going to say this straight up to Gene. And we are going to trust that we've set up the tone so clearly that when Gene brushes it off— uh in a in a punchline it's all gonna feel right in the world it's not gonna feel like we made a mistake it's not gonna feel like now gene knows too much and oh gene's gonna be on to him no it actually feels tonally perfect and now we completely understand what barry sees and the stakes have been set real clearly Which leads to the other part of the pilot I have to talk about because this show is so good at hooks at the end of the episode. And the hook at the end of the pilot is that Barry finally goes to kill Ryan Madison because he's going to try to have both things. He's going to try to be Barry the hitman, Barry Berkman the hitman, and Barry Block the acting student with the bad name given to him by Ryan Madison at Residuals. And Barry Block and Barry Berkman all together go to kill Ryan Madison, only to discover that the Chechens have decided to just kill Ryan Madison themselves, and then when the Chechens see Barry there, they try to kill Barry, and so Barry kills the Chechen assassins. And the episode ends with one of many, many, many great ending hooks for Barry, where now we see Barry is in even deeper.
1: And that part of the the reason that he wanted to be an actor, that you into before is that this idea of being seen and that being a hitman puts him in the shadows but even when he's acting and he completely exposes himself and who he is they because of him. the vapidness no <laughs> one can see him because everyone is so narcissistic and so transactional and so really the thing that gets him seen is the killing. Yes, that's the thing that is ultimately putting him at risk of being seen, because this sets up another, you know, chain of events that lands us where we are now with the story. So, you know, the police become involved and and, and the plot evolves. So really, the whole expectation that actually being an artist will let me be seen is upended in that final sequence, which is also just really satisfying.
0: You know what? That is going to come back to us as we talk about the new season, season three, of Barry. And that was your spoiler alert warning. If you have not watched the new season of Barry, season three, episodes one and two on HBO or HBO Max, Uh, or if you've never watched Barry and you just heard us talk about the pilot and now you want to go check it out, I would say now is your time to bail. We enjoyed having you with us. Uh, Email us your questions at podcast at streamageddon.com and send us your comments and reviews on Apple Podcasts. Goodbye forever. We'll see you in the future. The rest of you, welcome to our discussion of Season 3, Episodes 1 and 2 of Barry. I have been holding back so many feelings, so many emotions for the last... 30 minutes. Diane, how are you feeling about season three of Barry? Ooh, it got dark. It got so dark, so fast. I texted you the other night. I was like, Barry is scary. This season is about Scary Barry.
1: It is. It really is. And you know what? This show does not let its characters get any moment of happiness. No. It's like, Brutal. But
0: to be fair, Barry had exactly like 30 seconds of happiness at the end of episode two when he got off the phone and thought that he had figured everything out, and then he got to the trunk of his car and realized he had not gotten everything figured out. But we should backtrack a bit and discuss what we mean by that.
1: We should. One of the things that we haven't gotten to yet, which we must, is my favorite character on Barry No Ho Hank. No Ho Hank. <laughs>
0: Yes, Noho Hank, uh, played by Anthony Kerrigan. He is a member of the Chechen mob, who is kind of like a dandy of the Chechen mob, if I can say so. In the in the first oh, yeah. season, in particular, they kind of paint him as like the goofy member of the Chechen mob, the one who's on social media all the time and interested in their, the the way the mob comes off to people, less than how they kill people. Though he's not an idiot, that, that they, they thread that needle carefully at first before you kind of get a sense of who Noho Hank is. He's ambitious, but he is not of the the, he's not cut like a mobster let's say
1: no and yeah he's always interested in like showing off new gadgets for the mob he gets in trouble because of this like hidden lipstick camera that he's so fascinated with um he seems like one of those characters who much like barry probably isn't really cut out for this work even though he also happens to be quite good at it yeah. which is interesting
0: yeah, and he's a survivor in many ways. There's in the first season, I you you get to love him as a character, but you're like, is he the comic relief they're going to throw away, or is he going to be is he going to be killed? Because at a certain point, like, how long do you keep this this charade of the dandy and the mob going? But no, he he is actually not bad at his job, and he is really good at uh you know avoiding catastrophe, whereas other members of the mob are not.
1: Yeah. Sometimes in spite of himself, but yes. Yes,
0: but same with Barry in some ways.
1: Well, so where we find Noho Hank at the beginning of season three brought me great joy.
0: Yes, and to, to, to make this clear too, because even if you're following with us, uh, if you have not rewatched the end of season two, season two ended with Barry assassinating, murdering basically the entire Chechen mob in la as well as the bolivian gang run by Cristobal, and uh, Cristobal and the bolivians noho hank and the chechens were uh, feuding with each other and they were coming together and that is when barry hunting down fuchs wound up killing them all in a white hot rage and mm-hmm. that that scene is really something that the him killing all of these people many of whom he knew because he helped he helped Noho Hank train the Chechen gangsters. Uh, he, he murders people who look at him as a, a mentor in that scene with, with a dead look in his eyes. Terrifying. But it leaves both the Bolivians and the Chechens with very little in terms of actual manpower. And that's where season 2, 3 begins, and at first what we see is Noho Hank running a weird little heroin operation out of a a greenhouse with a giant sign that says, PLANTS! with an exclamation point. Uh, And then we find out, actually even better, he is in a relationship with Cristobal. Noho Hank and Cristobal have come together for the most elegantly revealed gay relationship in television history? (laughs) It was Perhaps. so perfectly, he just gets home and starts talking to Crystal Ball while Cristobal takes a shower and he starts taking off his clothes to take a shower with Cristobal. And it is just like, honey, I'm home.
1: And then they show them snuggling in bed. It's so cute. There is a moment in the end of season two where um, Cristobal yeah. like wraps his leg around yes. Noho Hank. Um, Which I had forgotten so about like,
0: until I rewatched that.
1: Me too. And then I was like, Oh, okay, but but there was no, I mean, indication from that that they were in a like you know ongoing consensual no, relationship.
0: No, you know, in some ways, especially because we had this conversation about queer baiting with uh, our flag means death recently. Mm-hmm. I, I, they, they, the knock against NoHo Hank for a while would be like, what do you do? Are you kind of queer baiting us, or are you trying to paint this person as a kind of gay trope, to for lack yeah. of a better word. Uh, or a closeted trope for lack, you know and mm-hmm. and I thought it was great, really smart, but also really just great that they went at that head-on in the the pilot, uh, the premiere of season three, and, and just made it clear that they're not going to play that game anymore. And I don't know if that's a decision that they'd always been building to, if they knew that's how they were going to treat it uh, when they wrote that episode at, at the end of season two. It's been a long time since the end of season two, so I could also imagine that they've uh, thought about it more or had a, a new idea or change of heart. But that mm-hmm. was such a great reveal. And sadly trouble is afoot in paradise for them. But I agree. That was such a wonderful uh, new direction for Noho Hank in particular.
1: Yeah, and he's always been such a funny character, but he also has so much heart, which is really nice on a show about such awful people. Um, Not that we don't see him do bad things, because we see everyone on the show do really horrendous things. Uh But uh, in a lot of ways, I think that Hank is the like beating heart of the show. He's the sweetest character. And uh, so to see him have this happy moment. And then in the second episode of the third season, uh, to see that the trouble in paradise. It, it was upsetting. But, yeah. you know.
0: The Bolivians from Bolivia are here and they want Cristobal to uh, kill all the Chechens, including Noho Hank. And we discover that Cristobal actually has a wife and a child in Bolivia that Cristobal is clearly not eager to get back to. And Cristobal right. comes to tell Noho Hank, you need to leave because these Bolivians will kill you. These are the real deal. These are the elite Bolivian soldiers who we mostly see partying in an Airbnb, but that's the tone of the show. <laughs> that fits, right. uh And and you know if that ends. That scene actually ends with a really interesting, like thirty second uh hold on NoHo Hank's face. NoHo mm-hmm. Hank's in the doorway of his house watching Cristobal leave and get in his car and we are in a tight shot on Noho Hank's face watching and we hear the sound of Cristobal walking to his car turning it on, the radio coming on there's an interviewer with one of the musicians from the Eagles in the distance then we hear it begin to pull away and we watch Noho Hank slowly watch the car go down the street and that that episode directed by Bill Hader, such a long lingering take on him, which Uh, It's something they had to earn over three seasons that would not have had the same kind of impact in season one with Noho Hank. But once again, I was like, what a beautiful choice to take something where it felt like a, you know, a dramatic twist for the sake of a dramatic twist. We have to get the Chechens and the Bolivians fighting again so that Noho Hank has a reason to get together with Barry again. Because if things are, you know, copacetic between Cristobal and uh, Noho Hank— well, then Noho Hank doesn't want Barry around because what happened last time Barry was around, he killed everybody. Right. And now I'm pretty sure we have a reason to get Andy Noho Hank. Him. Yeah. Oh, yeah, and he framed <laughs> him. That too, that too. Uh,
1: just in that moment with Anthony Kerrigan, I think it speaks to something that the show has done so well with its casting is that all these actors are really good at physical comedy, but they're also completely competent dramatic actors like beyond beyond competent i should say they're also excellent dramatic actors and i love that about the show too like they do these bits of physical comedy but when it comes time to do these action sequences these like big shootout scenes they're as good as any action movie that you'd go see right now yeah they're suspenseful they're really violent and gory but like artfully done
0: yeah i think a lot of the same applies to sarah goldberg who plays sally Uh, Sally, of course, becomes Barry's girlfriend. And Sally has her career really skyrocket at the end of season two uh, as she gets a pilot picked up about her supposedly true story about overcoming her abusive relationship, which we know to be a lie. And she did not really dramatically overcome her abusive relationship. Uh, And and no judgment to that. The, The truth is more complicated. And you can see that weighing on Sally uh, at many moments as the lie builds. Uh, but now she's producing a pilot. She is like the writer-creator star of a show that's coming out. And that that is causing new tension between her and Barry because Barry's career has stalled at the start of season three. He's not acting. He's not getting auditions. And she is literally scheduling him on when to drop in uh, supposedly unexpectedly at the set so that he can uh, ask if she's free for lunch and she can say no, <laughs> then he can right. leave.
1: Well, and I think what escalates there beyond that tension is that he is so depressed and so mired in his own problems that he can't even see anything beyond yeah. himself at, the, at when we catch him in the second episode of the third season. And so he... Um, sort of unleashes a torrent of just shouting abuse at her at work in front of a couple of her colleagues in a, a pretty distressing scene to watch. Um, yeah. It was one of those where I was like, oh man, if I if they had done this in the first season, I probably would have stopped watching, I think. And, I, I, you know, yeah, yeah. that might just be me being a sensitive viewer. But, you know, it, it's a lot to watch. Um the fact that they still put a few jokes in the episode helped. It's certainly not as jokey as it was in the first season.
0: Yeah. Season three so far, less jokey, but when the jokes hit, they hit really hard, partly because they need to draw that contrast. Uh, Episode two, to tell us just a bit about how we got here, in episode one, uh, Gene Cousinow has found out that Barry murdered his uh, lover, his his girlfriend, uh, who was a, a, a detective who was investigating Barry, and Barry killed her. And Fuchs, at the end of season two told Kusinau that Barry Berkman did this. And so now Gene mm. knows, and nobody believes Gene because Barry's been cleared of the crime because he framed the Chechens, right? Right. And so uh, Barry is seemingly just trying to reconnect with Gene. Jean. Gene's life has gone to shit since this all happened. Gene's acting class is closed and in the the uh, premiere Uh, Gene tries to kill Barry with a prop gun given to him by Rip Torn, which is a detail that is a callback to another episode, (laughs) which is such a a perfect little callback that, yeah, of course, you have a gun Rip Torn gave you. And uh, Barry, realizing that Gene knows, takes Gene to the desert to kill him and at the end I for one was thrilled they went that far that fast at the top of season 3 because the the lazy way or the easy way let's say to do this season would be to draw out that confrontation between Barry and Gene for as long as possible in order to build the tension and what's going to happen and instead we go there right away we get another killer end of episode hook where Barry is about to kill Gene and then goes no I've got it and his plan, as unfolds horribly in episode two, is to get Gene's acting career started again so that Gene will have something new to live for and then won't want to kill Barry or turn Barry in. Which is uh, half-baked, to say the least, but Barry is a man, like, wallowing in his own misery in the midst of essentially a manic episode for most of, of episode two. So he, he does not see how ridiculous this plan is.
1: No. And also, he's just so, at this point, so broken on how he knows how to connect with other humans.
0: I agree. Barry is extremely broken at this point in the show and does not know how to connect with any other humans. And so he's really struggling to make Gene happen. Like, this is the man who he viewed as his potential father figure, his potential life changer. and Savior. His savior, yeah. And, and he is so disturbed by the possibility that he might have to kill him because at at his heart barry knows how to kill people he is a killer and a well-trained one and he knows that if gene is allowed to live without uh, you know any deal he is gonna turn barry in and and the delusion in this episode is barry thinking that oh i can make him happy and making him happy will solve this And where the episode ends is very different. The episode ends with Barry realizing the truth is far worse, far darker. The truth is I have to threaten him. I have to threaten killing people who are even more important to him than he is to himself. And and that's the the extremely dark place we wind up after we go through this journey of Barry uh, verbally abusing Sally in her workplace in a again truly uncomfortable scene, uh, but one where I do want to highlight Sarah Goldberg's acting is uh, off the charts. I mean that that she Barry is scary in that scene. She is so human. You. Knowing her history and knowing the lie that she's kind of telling in this TV show she's writing, you see all the patterns that she's lived through repeating themselves. And you can see her realizing that as well. Because as they continue to develop the pilot and rehearse the pilot for her show, she feels like something's wrong, something's not truthful, something's off in the writing. And we know what it is. She sort of knows what it is, but she can't articulate it because to say this is all a lie— well, they bought the show because it's based on her brave, true story.
1: Right. And we really get that development with her over the course of the second season. I think that in the first season, she's still an interesting character, but she exists in the same way that a lot of the characters in the acting class exist as these sort of just somewhat vapid because of their extreme narcissism. Um, They um, are incredibly funny, but still always somewhat... Uh, Two dimensional, and that she has just blossomed into this really like intricately bloss. I don't know, it com- a beautiful yeah. character, complex, be- be- yeah. beautiful
0: and complicated, beautiful and, and ugly in in its beauty. So like, ugly, yeah. She she is in the first episode of season three. She's kind of emotionally abusive to Barry. And he takes she it is. to a far worse place in episode two. But I thought part of the reason that I could stomach that scene in episode two was because I just watched her be extremely extremely manipulative with Barry in episode one. And then after... Barry, you know, verbally assaults her. She reverts to trying to please him. She buys a new controller for his broken Xbox. She makes him his really sad dinner of spaghetti from the children's menu and a a Budweiser. Um that and a donut and a donut, which is clearly a motif they're going for this season, Barry eating Mm -hmm. donuts. That arc for her, we had to we we needed three seasons to get there, to say the least. There's no way any of that would have worked in season one. Uh, But it shows how much they've grown and how, you know, like we said earlier, it's not a show about static characters who don't change. In many ways, they're stuck and they're not changing, but in so many ways, they are changing.
1: Yeah. And also, I mean, her arc for the first two seasons was really driven by her ambition. And what we see now is that she's doing this stuff for Barry, you know, Probably, on some level, for her own safety, because yeah. he's become so frightening, but at the sake of her career, at the sake of this incredible opportunity that she has, um which is a big reversal for for the Sally that they've set up um, yeah. yeah, i was I'm really excited to see where they take that, but also I'm gonna be watching it sort of with like one hand over my mm-hmm. eyes, um ready to turn away at any moment because that could really get ugly. Um, Yeah,
0: I do think they did a a smart thing that was both funny, to be honest, but also smart, in that they had the two characters who were in the room when it happened, have a follow up conversation about it later in the episode. One of these characters is like a 20 something writer on the show. uh, And one of them is the young actress playing Sally's daughter on the TV pilot. And the, the daughter character actor comes to the writer and says you know oh, should we report this to hr like what do we do and the the writer is there with like a pa from from on set and they're like well was he physically abusive no did he threaten her no he doesn't work for the company so it's not like you can lodge an hr complaint for like workplace behavior and then the writer just kind of shuts her laptop and goes i like my job and she walks away. And then the PA turns to this young woman, the actress, who's trying to do what she feels is the right thing. She saw something horrible, and she's like, shouldn't we say something? And, and you know, um, the, the PA says, basically, it sucks that you had to see that. And then she puts her hand to her, like, microphone or her earpiece and goes, what's that, camera's ready? And she turns back to the actress, the young woman, and goes, they're ready for you on set.
1: Oof. Which, I mean, I think just really doubling down on the fact that this is not a safe environment, no. <laughs> um, particularly for young people.
0: Yeah, and I do think there's a current of that through so much of the show at this point that, again, knowing how much of this is really uh, created by Bill Hader in particular, and directed at this point almost entirely by Bill Hader. It's it's in many ways his vision that we're seeing mm. in a lot of this. Not exclusively. There are other people involved, of course. But I, I always wonder how much of this is based on his experience coming up in in Hollywood. He's talked in interviews about how he really wasn't the most, like, camera... Uh, ready person. He he was camera shy, to put it one way. He didn't like the idea of being in front of the camera always, especially in his early career. And what did he see in the industry that he now is mining for this, because again, it's very funny, but a lot of it rings really true, especially if you've spent any time close to, uh, you know, uh, theater and television and film.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that another reason that makes it both very satisfying as a viewer and for me, really hard to watch. I also think something I'm excited about in this final, or not final, in this new season... Whoa, whoa. Do not
0: bring that energy into (laughs) the world, Diane. There's
1: just no way it's the final season. But in this this new season, as that when we think of the premise, Hitman goes to an acting class, they've gotten rid of the acting class. Yeah. They no longer have that, which was such a great source of comedic opportunity. Um, But Gene's class has been canceled. So now what we're really following, there's no longer that glue to make all the characters in the same place every episode. And so they're really just investing in these character arcs, I think, to see what would happen next to these people. Yeah. And so they're becoming really human in a scary, excellent way. I also it's think like,
0: we're, we're seeing a bit of a, a parable about how once you leave the safety of, of a class, of school, mm-hmm. of the learning environment. And once you find some success in what you do, everything gets a lot more dangerous, a lot more existential. For Barry, it's literally dangerous. It's literally existential. And it stems from the fact that he's become too good of a killer. He killed all of the Chechen and Bolivian mobsters at the end of season two efficiently, perfectly he got away with murdering a police detective he is is stumbling around on like the dark web as a hitman now and is good at it, he knows how to clean up his messes so he doesn't get caught but that has raised the stakes for him to a really threatening place where he doesn't have a safety net anymore because previously his safety net was Fuchs and just to wrap where Fuchs is he is in Chechnya and he is yeah. the ultimate fall guy that Noho Hank and the the Chechens are planning to throw under the bus if they need to. I have a feeling that'll go a different way just based on the way that the best laid plans work on Barry but but he has no safety net right now and he hates Fuchs right now he would kill Fuchs himself if he could so it's not like he wants that safety net it's why he's grasping at Gene in the first two episodes he he is Mm. without any comfort without any place to land if he falls and Sally is going through the same thing if she fails at this pilot at this massive amount of success she's suddenly gotten she could lose everything Whereas in season one, if she messed up a scene in class, she would feel devastated, but she would be back in class the next day.
1: That's true. And also, though, I think that there is a huge emotional risk for Sally in the fact that she's found herself back in an abusive relationship and really um, found herself under the thumb of an abuser uh, again, which is something that she had. Told herself she was past, even if the way that she had moved past it was different than the story she was telling publicly. I think she thought that she wouldn't, that she had broken that pattern in her life. And so that is also incredibly dangerous. And what I wonder is the show has managed to not kill off that many of these major characters yet. And that's going to be hard to maintain. I, I think that's think... a
0: good question. I, and I do want to add a tiny bit of levity at the end of this, because we are talking about how <laughs> dark guess. season three is, and it is dark. But there's there's, throughout this, still the humor. And one thing that we talked about earlier is how Uh, Barry we see in the pilot when he tries to be seen as an actor he does not get seen and when he tries not to be seen as a hitman is when he gets seen for what he is and that comes right back in season three when he is trying to get Gene a role on anything he spends most of episode two with Gene locked in the trunk of his car. Because again, Barry is experiencing a manic episode and not thinking clearly. So he just locks Gene in the trunk of his car and goes from place to place begging people to give Gene a role, which starts with Sally. That goes very badly. Then he winds up talking to a casting director, played by a real casting director, uh, who he auditioned for in uh, the previous season and then got a role, but then never showed up for the role. Kind of forgot about that plot line a little bit. But as soon as they bring it up, I'm like, oh yeah. And he begs her for uh, a job for uh, Gene. And she's like, Gene Cousineau? He is a horrible person. I will never work with him. And then she looks at Barry and she's like, but I might have a role that's good for you still. (laughs) And hands him an audition for a terrible sounding network uh, justice procedural uh, that night. He She also throws away one of my favorite gags of the episode. She shows him a poster for the movie that he passed, He didn't show up for. He was cast in it, and then he never showed up for it. And they replaced him with Josh Gad and Adam Devine. And she goes, oh, two short guys, never, ever going to work. Not funny. I don't know why they think it is. Then, of course, he prepares for his audition. How does he prepare for his audition? By dragging Jean Cousinow out to, like, a, a desolate piece of land by an oil rig and having him run lines with him. Then Barry shows up for the audition. Doesn't do amazing. Does fine. We see, like, the scene get red. And then at the end of the audition, like, drops his audition shtick and is like, can you get... Uh, I, I need this role, but what I really need is a role for my mentor, Gene Cousineau. To which somebody goes, "Isn't that the guy who bought a uh, brought a gun to his Full House audition?" <laughs> Favorite line maybe ever. And then Barry winds up convincing them to give both him and Gene roles by uh, basically t- telling him the, them the story of Barry looking up to Gene just by bearing his soul again, not acting, but by being seen for the horrible person he is i i found that full circle-ness of when barry does not want to act at all they fall over themselves trying to give him roles trying to give him opportunities and when he wants it so bad he can't get it
1: oof what what a fun fun industry
0: right and of course we have to wrap on how the episode ended gene gets out of the trunk barry thinks he's nailed it he calls sally to tell sally that everything's going to be great and he gets back to the trunk and gene has escaped and barry hunts gene down because that's what barry's good at but in the course of that we see again one of my favorite sight gags ever since the the fuchs chair of episode one season one uh gene climbs into the backyard of a house And we're watching two women, clearly like a stereotypical L.A. lesbian couple, having a serious conversation over their dinner table. There's a giant window behind them uh, to the backyard, and they're clearly breaking up over dinner. And we see Gene run across, and we're thinking, are they going to notice Gene? Is the joke going to be like, oh, my God, there's a man in the backyard? No, it's so much better. Because as they have a conversation about, like, were you breaking up with me? Why me? We see a dog run past after Gene. Then we see another dog run past. Then we see, like, four. Four dogs run past. And finally, the other woman says, You have too many
1: dogs.
0: <laughs> and the woman responds, Who? You? Me? <laughs> Me? Yes. And and that is when we truly at this point see like 20 dogs in the background. And then that's it. We later see Gene makes it home. A small dog is chasing him. Mm-hmm. And Barry is at Gene's house, threatening to murder. Gene's long-lost son, who he reconnected with in season two, and his grandson. And that is where we go full dark again. Barry is scary. Welcome to season three.
1: I'm in for the ride. I'm going to be watching every episode.
0: Oh, I'm going to be glued to it. They they took the tonal whiplash I felt rewatching the pilot, and they just, you know, amped up the extreme edges of it. The whiplash whips you harder and farther than it ever did before, but they have gotten here through two seasons of of building your muscle for that. You as a viewer are prepared for that now, and if you love these characters, if you love what this show is doing, you can take it it's not easy watching like we talked about and it is not going to be everyone's cup of tea but if you've ever enjoyed barry the ride to get here has been so exciting and now i am dying to know yeah exactly how long can we keep all of these characters alive at some point something's got to give what will it be who's going to crack first
1: and i will say if you're a viewer who is like wow it's been three years what like, I don't remember what happened with all these Bolivians and everything. i you can re-watch the first two seasons quite quickly. They you they really speed can. by. That's the great thing about a half hour
0: you You can also just rewatch the finale of season two mm-hmm. and pretty much know everything you need to know. If you've watched all the episodes, but you just feel like, Oh, it's been three years? Because yes, it's been three years. Uh the I rewatched the finale of season two after accidentally rewatching the pilot. And that that was all I needed to get caught back up on how did we get here? What's going on with Barry and the Chechens and the Bolivians and Sally? And honestly, the season finale of season two is phenomenal.
1: Yeah. Great TV.
0: So good. So good but we've talked about it for so long. This is our longest episode yet, Diane. Zoom has tried to stop us from sharing our love of Barry, but they never can, and they never will, because we will be here in your podcast feed all the time to tell you about our favorite shows, and our less-than-favorite shows, and of course, the latest streaming news and rumors and gossip. You can find a lot of that news, rumors, and gossip in the show notes in our links included in the show notes, and if there's something you're interested in, you can write to us, podcast at streaming com, or leave us a review on apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts you can find me on twitter at i am chris barlow and diane nora on twitter at at diane nora diane with two n's and there you go that is the latest from the world of streamageddon diane are you looking forward to watching anything other than barry this week
1: oh yeah i've been watching the new episodes of the Flight Attendant.
0: Oh, I haven't watched yet. I have a lot of mixed feelings, complicated thoughts about this show. We don't have time to go into it, but I cannot wait to talk to you and perhaps our listeners about season two of The Flight Attendant.
1: Yeah. And you, what are you watching?
0: Well, now you caught me off guard. I asked you a question without preparing my own answer. That's not, not a good host strategy, but I did it. And I'll tell you that I have also really been enjoying Russian Doll Season 2. I binged all of Russian Doll Season 2. It's over for me. And I I do think I liked it more than Season 1, but I do wish it had been a bit longer. That's another show. 30 minutes goes by fast, uh, like Barry. And I thought they could have spent a little more time fleshing out some of the story. But that's because I liked the story. So I think Mm. that's a good thing. Absolutely. Well, listener, you tell us what you're listening to, watching. You're listening to us. You tell us what you're watching. And we'll talk about it here on Streamageddon. (laughs) Streamageddon.